Well, good afternoon again. If you have your Bibles, go ahead. Please open up to Philippians chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 5. This text is beautiful. A wonderful text. In fact, uh, this text in the original Greek is thought to be, from verses 5 through 11, is thought to be an actual hymn. It's thought to be a hymn because of the rhythm and the, the way that the words actually flow in the original language. It's a beautiful message. It's also because just... The message of the gospel is put in this in such a succinct way that we get to see what Christ has gone through. And we're going to look at that today. So today, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 8. And then next week, Elder Shanahan's going to preach for us. And so uh, that's one of those things I signed him up for a long time ago. And uh, when it was way off in the distance, it seemed like a great idea. And uh, here it is. I think it's a great idea still. I can't wait to hear you preach next week. If you don't have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab your bulletin with Texas in there. Uh, we're going to read beginning in verse 5. Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask for you to illuminate our minds so that we can believe and understand and apply this, your word, to our lives. May we see our Savior for who he is and find joy in knowing and being known by him. Give us humility. Give us unity. Give us Hearts that bow only to you, despite so many people and things which seek to be our kings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This text before you is actually an often debated scripture. Uh, It's one of those things that comes up in theological circles and becomes a a great deal of questions and and looking into what does this mean. And, And the reason that it is such a theologically debated text of scripture is because it reveals a great deal about who Jesus is. Uh, and about his pre-incarnate state, before he came in flesh, and what it means for him to be God, who always existed, and then suddenly be born into the world as a baby boy. And it leads us to ask these questions about what it means that Jesus emptied himself, or that he was in the form of God, uh, or took the form of a servant, or was found in human form. And so this is theological treasure trove. And we're going to look at that, but before we do, I want you to see that when Paul wrote this letter, he wasn't trying to convince the Philippians of all these things. It's not an argument trying to prove that that Jesus existed with God the Father before all of creation. That's not what it's an argument meant to do. He just says it as mere fact. It's we who read this and then begin to focus on these things and begin to see that it does reveal a great deal about the nature of Christ. But that's not the point. It's, it's like if I told you, hey, the other day when Elvis was over for lunch, he told me about this website that will take your text and turn them into to voicemails. You might hear me say that and you think, wait, did, did you just say Elvis was over for dinner? And that becomes kind of the focus all of a sudden. What do you mean Elvis was over for dinner? Isn't he dead? And so I, I want you to understand that the main statement there is, is this. What I mean is that there's a, a great deal revealed here about the details of, of Christ's incarnation. But theological intrigue really isn't the point that Paul is making in this statement. The point of Paul telling us this 
is for us to say that we who follow Jesus, that we would follow his example, his example of, of selflessness, his example of, of humility, and his example of obedience here. Uh, if you remember, we looked last week, uh, verses 1 through 4, and in that section, Paul is talking about the need for the church to live in unity with Christ and to live in unity with each other. The two verses before this section, even, you might remember, say, I hope you remember, it's only a week ago, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And pointing to Jesus, then, Paul is saying, look at our Savior. Look at him as an example of this way of thinking, this way of living. It's a clear picture that our, our sins are forgiven because Christ actually lived this out. Christ actually showed humility in the way that, that he cares for us, the way that he came, the way that he died for us. And before you get far down this, let me say, this isn't moralism. That was my first thought when I saw this. It sounds like moralism. And moralism, though, we, we are falsely taught to look to Jesus as an example for how we can earn God's favor. Moralism gives us this idea that, that God's somehow mad at us for not being good enough. Here, though, Christ is the example, not the standard by which you are earning your salvation. Jesus accomplished that for you. Jesus accomplished that for you because you can't accomplish that. Even if you tried to accomplish that, you could not accomplish that. And what our text is teaching is that this way of thinking, this sort of humility, is what Jesus did to pay for our sins. His death on the cross is a, is a sign of that. Uh, and it's this sort of humility that can be ours, since we have union with Christ through faith, since we are actually filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a model for us to look to Jesus with gratitude for his selfless love, and then to follow his example as we seek to show selfless love through selfless humility to others, not trying to pay him back, not to try and stay in God's good graces, but simple gratitude for what he has accomplished for us. This isn't the only place that we see Christ shown as an example. Jesus even points to himself as an example in John chapter 13. That's where Jesus goes to wash the feet of the disciples, and Peter says, never will you wash my feet, uh, because they're dirty and, and they're nasty, and that's just a lowly thing to do. And Jesus tells Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no place with me. And Peter quickly waffles, like any of us would, and he says, well, okay, uh, wash my head, wash my hands, you know, let's take care of this then. Uh, and Jesus doesn't do that, but he does wash the feet of all the disciples, even Judas. Then in John 13, 12 through 15, this is right after that section, Jesus says this. He says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for I am. And if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. In that text, we see Jesus pointing to himself as the example of how to live a life of humility among each other. In our text here, we see Paul pointing to Jesus as an example of what humility being lived out in the ultimate sense, the ultimate form, actually looks like. So that's the mind which is ours in Christ. We are being told to have this mind among ourselves, for this to be our mind in verse 5. So we're going to look at the rest of this passage, see what the example that Christ actually gives here. Verse 6 says, speaking of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I expect the question which arises in your head 
as you read this, is what does it mean that Jesus was in the form of God? What does it mean that Jesus is in the form of God? After all, we live in a world where you can walk into a McDonald's on almost any street in the entire country and buy a sandwich that is in the shape of a rib, the form of a rib, a rib with bones in it for some reason. And unless you're born without a tongue, you realize pretty quickly this is not a rib. It's only the form of a rib. In our text, though, this use of the word form of God is not communicating that Jesus isn't really God. And I say that because the way we use that word in our language, we tend to read this, that somehow he's something less than that. In our text, when we see this, it's a picture of Jesus before he existed. This statement, imagine, is speaking of Christ before the incarnation. It's a picture of the pre-incarnate Christ. And that is Jesus before he was born in the manger, as he would dwell with God in all of eternity. See, remember this letter is going to the church in Philippi. And we've talked about this a lot because it's good to know who is it going to, who is the audience. And one of the things we know about Philippi is that there's a high percentage of military personnel there, both active and retired, living there. And it it really hasn't taken long for us living in Manhattan for us to see that, that there's a ranking system in the army. I don't really understand what it is. But I know it's not invisible. I, I know that when we engage people, when we talk to people, that there are, I'm probably going to use the wrong terms here, I should have asked before, badges and colors and medals that show someone's title, meaning someone can look at someone else's uniform and tell a great deal of where their level on this ranking system is. With this clothing comes some degree of honor, some degree of, of prestige. In our text, and this is where it connects back, this first portion is telling us where Jesus has come from in the sense of prestige. He has, he has been in a highly exalted position, a, a place of honor. One author says this, it's a picture of the pre-existent Christ clothed in the garments of divine majesty and splendor. The image there is, is tied to status. Jesus was high. He is God, and, and you could see that he was high if you were to see him. So think of this in terms of, of clothing and the way that it, it communicates that. This is the same root word, really, that we see at the, at the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is transformed, right? There the disciples get this peak of Christ's glory. And they describe the situation in Matthew 17, too, like this. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. They saw Christ's appearance matching his place of honor. Just the peak of it, but they got to see that. The second half of verse 6 says, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The Greek term here translated equality is isos, not, not isis, but isos. And you've heard it in, in science class before, isometric. Anyone know what that means? Equal measures. You've heard it in math class. The isosceles triangle. What that means is a triangle with two sides of equal measure. Uh, and here we see this word being used to speak of Christ, that Jesus has equality with the Father. The first verse in, in the Gospel of John says the very same thing. Uh, you remember, this is where, where Jesus is called the Word, and it says this. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's this equality, this sameness. What is significant here is that despite the fact that Jesus is equal with God, he's not counting it a thing to be grasped. The word grasp means anything that's been held tightly. Something prized, something clung on to because you treasure it, because you want to keep it, because you don't want to lose it. In fact, our church logo, if you look on the front of the bulletin, there's this, this image of a rooster. It's not a chicken, it's a rooster. 
And it symbolizes the Apostle Peter. And it symbolizes the Apostle Peter because Peter denied Christ three times. And Jesus told him, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. It happens just the way Jesus says it. And afterwards, Peter is broken. He is so disappointed in his own failure. And, and yet Peter goes to Christ and he's repented of, of what he's done. And we see this beautiful image of Christ forgiving him. Not only forgiving him, but welcoming him back completely puts him in his service, uses him in mighty ways in the future. And we see that Peter's only hope is, is that grasping onto the cross. And that's the same for each of us. And, and that's why this rooster is our logo, uh, grasping onto that cross, because that is our only hope. In this text, Jesus has a right, because it belongs to him, to grasp onto the equality that he has with God. He could. He could rightfully do that, and he chooses not to. In verse 7, then we're seeing that what he does instead is, it says, but he emptied himself. If I emptied that bucket of water right there, what would I be emptying out of it? I, I might say I emptied a bucket of water. That's what it would be. What did Jesus empty himself of? I mean, look at the text. What did Jesus empty himself of? What's it say? It doesn't. It doesn't say explicitly there what Jesus has emptied himself of. And, and that's led to a number of heresies. That's false views that say that Christ is merely a human. Merely a human who was without divinity. And, and we look at this and we see Jesus does not empty himself of all divine attributes. Yes, as a child he had to actually learn how to walk. He had to learn how to, how to read Hebrew. And yet when he begins his public ministry we see that, that he remained omniscient. All-knowing. See that that he knows everything about the woman at the well. Or he knows what's in the minds of the Pharisees who are, who are seeking to trick him in the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus incarnate is, is not omnipresent in a physical sense, being everywhere at once, but you know, the reality is when he put on flesh, he was limited to be at one place at one time, to be physically present there. And yet, if you remember in, in John 1, when he meets Nathaniel, he says this, Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. He's present there, and yet he holds on to this divine attributes of somehow being able to see Nathanael where he was. Jesus has some ability to see a location where he isn't. The point is, Jesus did not empty himself of these divine attributes. Remember the point of this passage. It's showing us Christ as the ultimate example of humility. Jesus' willing, intentional movement from a place of prestige to a, a lowly place, and to do it all for the sake of his people, the church. In that sense, he's giving up his divine rights, he's, his rightful place of honor, his, his right to not feel pain, to not suffer. We see this more in the rest of verse 7. It says, He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus could have come as a king, at least the Roman emperor, right? But he comes as a baby. He comes born into a family that's really at a below average social status. And we see this word form again here. You remember to, to think of that word like clothing, clothing that marks a, a ranking or a prestige. Jesus trades his heavenly prestige for that of a servant. And he lives the life of a servant. In Matthew 20, the, the mother of two disciples come to Jesus. It's James and John's, and I can only imagine how embarrassed they were that their mom went and talked to Jesus for them. And she asked him this question, can my son sit at your right hand and sit at your left hand in the kingdom? She had this idea, this lofty goal for her children that 
There is a future prestige for you. There is a place of honor for you. And Jesus is speaking to them all a little later. You know, he, he doesn't answer her like she wants, but Jesus is speaking to the rest of the disciples later. Uh, and he says in Matthew 20, 27, and 28, Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus is always turning our world upside down. You, you want to be first in the kingdom of God, the highest honor? Then consider yourself last as you serve others now. Our text continues saying that Jesus was born in the likeness of men. The reason that term likeness is included is to make sure that we understand that Jesus is still divine. He really is a human man, and he really is God. Verse 8 seems to be saying the same thing, and, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. It's a different Greek word translated here for form. This time it's this word schema. This is speaking explicitly of the outward appearance of Jesus, his flesh, and all that that implies. Um, you know, we, we tend to forget this idea that this is God who has come down as man and, and all the nastiness that it, that it is to be a human at times. As, as a human, Jesus had to eat for energy, and that means he had to use the restroom, right? He likely stubbed his toe and he felt pain that comes from that. I mean, you start to look at the whole process, and, and for four days of the incarnation, Jesus was a zygote in Mary's uterus. He felt the feeling of rejection when the people hated him. You know, Jesus experienced these struggles of what it's like to be a human, to be like you and I. And our text says that, that he humbled himself. Not he was humbled, but that he humbled Himself, he, he chose this. And, and we look at the results of Jesus choosing humility. How does he humble himself? Our text today ends with that. It, it says, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here we see the connection between humility and, and obedience. I, I expect we can relate to this. We, we don't want to obey the laws because we pridefully believe we know better. I can drive safely while texting. And drinking and eating and so many other things. You know, we don't want to obey our parents because they don't really know what they're talking about. That's pride speaking, saying we know better. We don't want to obey the word of God because we want what we want and we pridefully think that we know better how to live. In John 14, 15, Jesus is speaking and he says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's for us as disciples of Christ. What we see in our text today is that Jesus Christ, who has more rights to do whatever he wants, chooses instead the path of obedience. A path he knows that leads to a painful death. In Christ, we see our God, who already had a place of honor in the kingdom of God, come as a man and experience death so that we, too, could have a place in his kingdom. Our passage specifies that place. He says, death on a cross. And the fact that it's specified like that tells us there really is something significant about the way Jesus died, particularly as it's related to, to humility. See, in our culture, we see crosses everywhere. They're decorations. They're, they're hanging on the wall like that. Uh, they're on the tops of steeples. They're on walls and paintings on the cover of our Bibles. In fact, I have a silver one hanging around my, my neck right now. They're everywhere. When we see crosses, we tend to think of Jesus, and we think of the love he had for us. The, the Jews also had many crosses in their culture. They didn't think of Jesus, though. They associated it with crucifixions. 
what they saw at the cross was very different. They saw criminals who were being put to death, put to death for terrible crimes they've committed. They understood this to be a place for guilty people, not innocent people. Crucifixion was the form of capital punishment in that time. It was punishment for the worst types of criminals. So to understand this, you really have to imagine that instead of a cross hanging on the wall behind me, imagine there's a shape of an electric chair hanging on the wall. Or a hangman's noose on the fronts of your Bibles. Or a guillotine sticker on the back of your car. Or the image of a, a syringe for lethal injection made out of silver and hanging around our necks. Or any other punishment that's been reserved for the worst types of criminals. The cross is beautiful to us, but that's because Jesus made it beautiful. And he made it beautiful by his humble obedience to the Father when he laid down his life on it. Galatians 3.13 says this, it's, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You know, Jesus didn't wake up one day and say, You know what would be fun today? Becoming a weak human, taking on the sins of many people, and getting nailed to the cross. He didn't do it for fun. He did it for love. Love for God the Father and love for his people, love for the church. And what we've seen in this passage is how Jesus has actually lived this out. What Paul commands to us in, in the previous two chapters is, is what we're seeing Jesus has actually lived out. And, and I want to show you, I'm going to read Philippians 2, 3, and 4, the previous two verses. But instead of the way it's written, I want to put Christ as the subject to show you that indeed Christ has lived this out. It says, Jesus did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, Jesus counted others more significant than himself. Jesus looked not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that's exactly what we see in our text today. We see this downward spiral of Christ. Really, that's, that's not a good phrase to use to explain this, is it? Downward spiral. I think the funny thing is, is I, I looked for a good phrase. I looked in thesauruses. I looked everywhere to find a good phrase in our language to explain this downward way that Christ has gone from this highly exalted place to a very low place. And I failed to find such a phrase. And the fact, in fact, I came to this conclusion that we don't have in our culture a positive statement for moving from the top to the bottom or from the front to the back. We have words like fall and, and decrease and de-escalate and regression and decline and sink and diminish. None of these do we hear positively uh, moving backwards or moving downwards. And the reason I don't think downward spiral is ultimately a good term is that it means out of control. When we speak of someone, you know, they just downward spiral. They were out of control and fell apart. No one does it on purpose. or They're out of control. And while Jesus goes from a high place to a low place, he isn't out of control. He's perfectly in control. And the fact that he's doing this intentionally is part of how he models humility for us. See, now the reason that our culture, I think, doesn't have a term for a willing decline is that we have no concept of willingly becoming less at high cost to ourselves and for the gain of others. And we live in a culture where wealth and glamour and luxury and power and prestige and the expectation that it is right for you to do whatever you need to do to advance yourself. What he's saying here is, is countercultural. It's counterintuitive to, to take the worst seat in the house, to serve when you don't have to, to help when you are not required to, to give when it might negatively affect you, or to stoop down to the level of those who are culturally below you. 
I remember this in, in high school and to some degree in college. There, there were these invisible social levels of, of coolness. I can't be the only one who's ever seen this, right? It's this pecking order. It, it wasn't specific, meaning I didn't know if I were a six or a four or, or what it was, but, but I knew that that group was cooler than me, and I was pridefully pretty sure that I was cooler than that group. Uh, and that was the way that it, it functioned. It, it wasn't just that, or, or usually, that people were mean to others. But you didn't see the poor guy sitting alone at lunch and go sit with him or invite him over to come sit with your friends and eat with you. You didn't do that because it might cost you. It might cost you in the way that it annoys your friends. Or, or even worse, you might get stuck talking to that awkward guy for all of lunch. Um, these are the kind of things I can remember going to my mind. And, and it's just one tiny application that we're, of what we're looking at, what we're talking about. And so for us, the struggle becomes, do we promote and do we speak well of a coworker? What a coworker we're in competition for, for a promotion. They did a great job. Do we speak up about that, or, or do we stay silent? As a church, we've mentioned it before, but it's worth mentioning again. Do we rejoice to see uh, the lost come to true saving faith in Jesus Christ when it's associated with another church or another campus group that we have good reason for believing uh, is less than ideal? Do we rejoice in the fact that they believe the gospel? And, and I hope so, because there are close to 55 thousand people living in Manhattan and only a tiny amount of them have eyes to see and hearts to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we pray for us to have opportunity to proclaim the gospel. We pray also for the, the RP church in Westview and Crestview and for Grace Baptist and Faith and every other church in town that preaches a true gospel. And so what I want you to learn here is that seeking to love others in humility is not easy. But it's possible for you as followers of Christ. And it's something for us collectively and, and individually to seek out. That means we are asking ourselves, what or who is below me? How can we serve them? How can I serve in a place that might not have prestige? You know, uh, ask your friend, ask your spouse. How can we humble ourselves where God has us following the example of Jesus Christ in this passage? And this doesn't mean that we avoid ways of serving that, that comes with prestige. That's okay. It means that we serve even in those positions of prestige with true humility, counting others as more important than ourselves. You know, the problem with politics today isn't that the role is prestigious. It's that men and women seek it for the role of prestige, uh, for the honor that comes with it, and they fail to serve humbly, considering others as more important while they serve in that position. So today we've, we've seen Jesus walk down this mountain, into this valley. We've, we've seen him come from his exalted position with, with God in all of eternity uh, into this lowly position of, of his death on a cross. And, and we're stopping here today on purpose so that we can just dwell on that humility of Christ. Uh, next week when, when Travis preaches, we're going to see as Christ is, is brought out of the valley and, and into ex exaltation. I hope you'll be here for that. I hope today Paul's point in this passage lands on you. Uh, that you understand that he's pointing us to Christ as a way to highlight the way towards having unity. Christ loves us. And this is how we're called to love others. Uh, with the selflessness, with humility, with obedience that leads to, to sacrifice. And remember, these are active things. This is active selflessness. This is active humility. This is active obedience. Uh, Jesus, our, our Savior, is highly exalted. Yet what we see here is that he identifies with the weak and the powerless, even to the extent that he suffered like them. He was unwilling to use the privileges that come with being God 
for selfish purposes, and instead he uses, that, uses it to redeem us from our sin. Two big challenges for us in this passage as we carry it out of here with us this week. The first, do you see what Jesus did for you? The emphasis in this text is, is certainly on Christ's example for us, an example of humility, but it also shows us quite clearly what Christ has actually accomplished for us. And so rest in that, rest in the fact that his love for us, his love for you, was so great that he laid aside his rights and became a man. And he died on the cross for you. That's done. For that to be true is is not contingent on how well you follow his example. Whether you care to follow his example reveals something of your heart. But your success in that is a very, very different thing. But hear me again. Find comfort. Find Rest in the truth of Christ's humble love for you, which has washed you clean. And the second challenge is how do we apply this? To figure out how our thoughts and actions might need to change to better match the character of our Savior. To love others in the way that that follows Christ's example. Even if we do it in a less than perfect way. What What I mean is that when an adult is teaching a child how to do something, we don't expect perfection. But we're honored by their following our example as best they can. If, if we were to show a child how to draw a bird and then ask them to follow our, our example, it would be disappointing for them to say, nah, I don't really want to draw a bird. We find joy in, I know, a bird's a weird example. But we find joy in seeing their, their weirdly drawn bird. Uh, even when at first it hardly resembles a bird. We just love the fact that they're trying to follow this example. They're trying to do what they've been taught and shown to do. That's, that's what I want you to understand. We won't live as humbly or as selfless or as obedient as Christ. But we glorify our God when we seek to follow his example of humility. Uh, when we choose what is less. When, when we are serving in a way that we might not wish to serve. Or, or when we're giving in a way that's difficult to give. When we say with our lives what John the Baptist said with his words in John 3.30, He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Father, you are the most exalted of all. Christ, our Savior, who was never created, but always existed. You who are fulfilled in the Trinity have humbled yourself to stoop to our level, to dwell among us, to suffer at our hands, and to die the shameful death of a criminal. You tell us you have done it because you loved us. Lord, thank you. Thank you for becoming a man so that you could redeem us from our sin, from the sin that has infected us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.